welcome to The Road to Find Out. I am guest host Angelina. I'm very, very excited to be here today. Um, I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Sophie Roy Wilson from the Department of History. Sophie, it is so lovely to have you here. Um, I'm personally just so, so excited by today. And yeah, would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your research interests are? I'm so happy to be here today, being interviewed by you, uh, Angelina. My name is Sophie Lloyd Wilson. I'm an Australian historian in the Department of History here at UCID. And my research area is Chinese Australian history and immigration history. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, so I took, I was very fortunate to take one of Sophie's classes last year at Spies in the Archives. It was an incredible course. Um, I myself, I'm studying history. I'm in my fourth year, um, technically third slash fourth year. But yeah, I'm very, very excited to pick your brain about Chinese Australian history being, you know, a Chinese Australian myself. Um, so I guess my first question to you, um, well, before we get into all of this, actually, I'd really like to acknowledge the actions of um, staff and students who are on strike on Wednesday and Thursday, May 11th and 12th. Um, and I just want to acknowledge and thank them for, you know, continuing the fight to protect higher education, to protect casual staff, to fight against wage theft. And um, I'm very excited to you know, see the results that come from that. I know a lot of action has already been inspired in different universities across across the state and across Australia. So it's very, very exciting to be a part of. And yeah, Sophie, is there anything you'd like to add or, yeah? So I saw Angelina on the picket line last week. I saw many students on the picket line last week. The image I took away was of staff and students standing together demanding a better university. And it's an image I won't soon forget. And I think it's an image that has real power as it moves across the nation to communicate to students that this is their university, it's their future, and that they can stand alongside staff to ask for a better one. Absolutely. And yeah, I think as students, especially within, you know, across all the faculties, and I think especially in arts where there's been a lot of pressures, a lot of honestly hopelessness as part of our degrees, I think it was really incredible to be part of such exciting energy. And I hope... Um, as we go along this podcast, we find out a little bit more about just how exciting higher education can be. So, Sophie, my first question to you officially is, how did you find your way into academia? How did you get here? Um, and, you know, what made you want to be a, a university historian? I love this question. I love it so much. My journey started here at the University of Sydney. I was actually a failed university student. So I was at ANU first. I flunked out. I found uni just too hard. I couldn't organize myself. And eventually I followed a guy, embarrassing, I know, but I followed a guy to Sydney and moved into Glebe, fell in love with the inner west and eventually enrolled at Sydney Uni in an arts degree. And I took a range of subjects, never history. I took English lit, I took politics. But it was an Australian history class here at Sydney Uni that really got me thinking about my world in, in new ways. This was a time soon after Pauline Hanson's first arrival on the political stage. And I, in fact, I had actually lived overseas in China during sort of the early days of the Hanson era. And it's an experience I never forgot. Trying to understand why someone with these ideas that were so cruel, alien and disturbing to me was given a platform and got support. I saw friends deeply hurt by the words that she was articulating and the politics that she was creating. Um, and for me, there, there was something really deep in Australia's past that I didn't understand. But at that point, I wasn't that interested in Australian history per se. I, in fact, took Russian history. Uh, here at Sydney Uni with a guy called Zdenko Zlatar, who was infamous for sitting back and watching you talk in tutorials and just saying, no, wrong, no, uh, <laughs> yep. famous for that. So I started out doing an arts degree and I began loving tutorials as a space. Remember, tutorial sizes were much smaller. So we're talking 11 to 12 students per tutorial. So there was real space to get your voice heard. Um, and I found this whole experience super democratic people from all walks of life, people with all different jobs coming to the table to discuss history. 
I loved it. I was completely hooked. So that began my journey into academia. I ended up doing a honors degree and then I did a PhD. I worked at Deakin Uni on a casual contract for a while, which gave me a really good insight into what life as a casual is like. And then I came back here on a postdoc and then a professor called Richard White retired from the Department of History and I went for a job in 20th century Australian history and I got that job. So that's how I came to academia. That's yeah, that's incredibly exciting. I always find it just awesome when, um, you know, every single academic, no matter which department, almost always has that one class that sort of changed like entirely like the trajectory the trajectory of what you know what their research interests are and stuff and you know for me that was your class spies in the archive which I was fortunate enough to take in semester one last year and yeah it's just it's so incredible to just see how um you know it all influences one thing and the next so and you know your experience living overseas whilst also engaging in um you know Australian politics or just even witnessing what was happening in the Australian political landscape um did was that entirely did that entirely transform you know what your research interests are today absolutely I was one of those people that was I suppose more focused on kind of European American questions I was interested in the Russian Revolution like a lot of people um, I was interested in American history, but living in Beijing in the late 90s and seeing the shift in Australian politics under Howard, I was really struck by what seemed to be kind of a hopeful relationship with China um, being dragged through the mud in Australia for what seemed to be historic reasons around racism. So when I returned uh, to Australia, certainly my whole vision of what it meant to be Australian was was changed. I also came back here having not really done Australian history. I wasn't taught that at my school overseas. And so I had to kind of learn uh, when I got here. And when I came to uni, um, I took Australian history courses. I took a wonderful course, which was called Cross-Cultural Currents, and it was shared with Chapel Hill University in the US. So it was very early Zoom technology, super awkward, yeah. but super well-meaning. And we'd sit in a classroom and they would discuss the American frontier and we would discuss the Australian frontier. Um, they would discuss kind of American democracy and we would discuss kind of Australian democracy. I had a really amazing teacher called Maggie McKellar, who's now a writer. She grew up in the country in Australia. She was descended from the famous poet Dorothea McKellar, core of my heart, my country. I love a sunburnt country poet. So that was her ancestry. And she knew the Australian landscape really well. And she talked a lot about Australian identity in a way that I'd never heard before. So she talked about frontier violence, for example. She talked about indigenous resistance. And I just didn't have an education in Australia like that. I knew about the gold rushes. I knew about yeah. federation. But in terms of kind of really understanding Australia as a place, like what made this place tick, I didn't get that. But Maggie was passionate. She'd come to class every day with a passionate story kind of from the country. And these local stories really changed how I thought about history. And she gave me my first HD ever at university, which you never forget, yeah, right? Absolutely. It took me so many years. So that class really changed how I thought. At the same time I was taking that class, I was thinking a lot about racism in Australian politics, how it constantly emerged as a tool to inspire fear and to divide. And it seemed to emerge all the time in all different ways. The word dog whistling was thrown about a lot mm -hmm. at this point. And I thought, I don't, I don't understand something here. Like, I don't understand the link between racism and fear in this country. And I really want to understand it. Yeah. And so that was the question that then kind of drove me from there. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I knew about Australian and Chinese history was really white Australia. And it was very much, you know, almost this erasure of Chinese people who had been to Australia before, um, you know, during the gold rush. Um, before white Australia really came into came into play and it was almost this entire history of Chinese Australians focused on their experience their experiences of racism rather than their actual life in Australia and their experiences in Australia the work they did and so you know going through your research and stuff was incredibly interesting because it focus it shifts the focus entirely um, you know acknowledging all of the um, actions that led to, you know, the, the political climate of the 90s and today, but also going back to sort of understand, 
um, Chinese Australians as people and not as you know the the object of just um, you know this this chapter in Australian history of of race and so into um, going into research in the area of research you recently won a DECRA um, DECRA I mean it already has the word award in it but I'm going to say it again DECRA award for um, you know and to investigate the history of Chinese economic activity in Australia congratulations thank you (laughs) could you walk us a little bit through how that research is going what made you interested in in researching that area essentially yeah I, I would love to so I really like your question for a range of reasons because I think what you're getting at is the way in which we write history that empowers and history that understands and history that doesn't patronize or erase. And so one thing that I found when I got really into the white Australia policy, which we all get taught in school, is that it was so much about surveillance. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to be a lot about immigration documents, photographs of um, Chinese Australians, for example, brought up on the National Archive database, uh, immigrants caught at the border, deportations, stories of deportation. So a lot about the immigration regime and how it worked and its oppressive functions. But I also began talking to Chinese Australian families at the same time, and they told me a different story. First of all, these families had often been in Australia since maybe the 1840s, 1850s. Oh, wow, yeah. So a long, long time, Mm -hmm. uh, longer than my ancestors, for example. Many of them had really deep relationships to the Australian landscape and to Indigenous Australians. There's a large group of Chinese Indigenous Australians out there. So their stories, the ones they told me, um, included things like this. They would say, I had an uncle, Willie, and he died in China. So we sold his paperwork because he was born in Australia, which gave him certain privileges. So we sold it to my cousin, and my cousin used it. And then we sold it to my uncle, and my uncle used it. And we still had that in the family archives. And I was thinking, that's a really interesting story about agency. Absolutely. It's showing a community saying, okay, I'm under an oppressive, unfair, deeply racist immigration regime. I'm going to find a way around it. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was, the archive I have, which is the White Australia Archive, doesn't tell me that story. Mm -hmm. It tells me the perspective of the person doing the surveillance. It doesn't tell me what was actually going on. And so what I became deeply curious about was this question. Okay, if we had this large creepy biological experiment the white australia policy (laughs) right Mm -hmm. this ridiculous experiment that was always a failure but always kind of awful and confronting that went on for so many years this 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 crazy idea that we're going to somehow engineer a purely white nation if we had those policies and all this money thrown at making that policy successful how come asian communities survived here yes how come they stayed how come a lot of my friends people that i work with in historical societies their families maintain businesses, they maintain farms. Often the generation that I got to know was highly educated. They had story upon story upon story of racism and exclusion, but equally they had stories of success and survival. And that wasn't in the archive. So I was thinking, okay, I need to get money to go out and find sources, find people that can speak back to the White Australia Policy Archive and get behind the photos and get behind the immigration documents because there's more to this story. So my decor is all about that. Uh, Yes, it's about kind of Chinese business. But what I'm really looking at is a really incredible archive, which you love, uh, Angelina, which is uh, the Law Court Archive. Wow. So Chinese Australians used the court system. They used it for a range of reasons. Often they used it to fight back against certain kinds of racism. And in the court system, their depositions are recorded. And these depositions are sometimes hundreds of pages. You get documents in Chinese, you get letters, you get descriptions of families and businesses, you get descriptions of market gardening partnerships. So you get a lot of information that you don't get in that White Australia archive. Now, that's mediated through the court system. Often there's trans- translators involved, but it's a lot more raw and direct than that White Australia Policy Archive. But it's not digitized. Um, they're very hard to find. And you need money to go out to those state archives, which are often on you know, really the borders of cities. So the one in yeah. Sydney is in Kingswood. It's quite far away. Uh, it's expensive to go there. Most people who are working jobs can't afford to. Once you get out there, you've got to spend a lot of time trying to find that case, find mm-hmm. the deposition and see if it survived. 
So I began doing that. So I'm creating this big database of all the cases. And that database gives me the way that families spelt Chinese names, which doesn't always get reflected in immigration documents. Yeah, absolutely not. You know, yeah. it, 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 and it also often details how families dealt with getting relatives into Australia. Mm-hmm. It details how inheritance works. Um, it details how often Chinese Australian men would marry um, you know, often they're Eurasian or white partner, and that would give them access to land ownership because often they were barred from owning land. Because mm-hmm. if you're in a citizen, you couldn't vote, you couldn't own land, you couldn't get welfare. There are so many ways that you couldn't survive here. But ways were found around that. So this is what I'm starting to do right now. I don't know if it's going to give me a Chinese-Australian voice, but I'm going to try. That is just absolutely incredible. Um, I'm Yeah, I'm completely blown away by that because I think... You know, um, being Chinese Australian, I have no idea what the um, what Chinese Australian history really is, or you know what exists out there to you know to learn about it, to to find the resources available to be able to even begin that process. And you know, my parents are recent immigrants and stuff, so we're like you know, I'm personally, I don't have any connections to family history that I know of in Australia, but I definitely could. Um, and, you know, having said that, there's also very little family history that we have preserved in China um, because of the Cultural Revolution and a lot of the records being destroyed in that process. So I think it's absolutely incredible that you're doing this work and being able to, you know, really pull out those stories of families of individual Chinese Australians and just be able to even have them um, be be able to be used in whatever ways in the future for different research purposes. That's really, really incredible. And, you know, another part of what you said really stood out to me was that a lot of these histories are captured really quite locally and really, you know, they're, they're family histories. Um, and so I'm my, my curiosity is, is there anything, you know, that you learn from that process of being really, really focused on local and family histories that is really just, you know, really makes this piece of work unique and different to, you know, using the traditional sort of, you know, the more, I don't know how to describe it best, but, you know, the the ways that people usually associate with traditional academic histories. It's a fantastic question. So Australia is always called a relatively new nation. Of course, we know when we say that we're speaking into a context that we're on stolen Indigenous land that was never ceded. The written record is relatively recent. Scientific history as we know it, as was invented in relatively recent times, depends on written documents. Mm -hmm. Loves written documents. Particularly loves national documents, documents produced by governments, by institutions. These are the places we look to for truth in our society. Think of the founding fathers in the U.S. and Hamilton, for example, right? (laughs) We look to these kind of foundational documents. The problem with doing that in Australia is this country is Anglo-centric and Mm English-centric. This is a country that right from the very beginning, when the Europeans arrived and invaded, hot on their heels were Chinese migrants, were Japanese migrants, were Afghan cameleers. Even the Europeans that arrived, people like men like Lachlan Macquarie from Macquarie Street, he didn't learn English till he was 16. He spoke Scottish Gaelic most of his life. Wow, I did not know that. So we have a history written in a language that doesn't reflect the experience of the people that are here. So it doesn't really reflect the experience of Indigenous Australians, although that is there are wonderful attempts now to try to try to do that. It doesn't reflect the experience of the colonial era migrants that came here, speaking all these different languages from all these different places, mainly from villages, from kind of pre-industrial societies, right? Uh, So they come here and their histories haven't been, in my opinion, collected or recorded kind of in in the national record. So then what do you do? Well, when you start speaking to families, stories come out that are kind of in contrast to what what we're taught. One of the biggest problems, I think, with national histories is that it normalizes and naturalizes really astonishing things. So some of the stories we have in this country are simply incredible and mind-blowing. I mean, the fact that 
you know, a British empire decided it would create a strange prison camp out here mm-hmm. and export its surplus population of criminals to the bottom of the world on a ship and they would survive and they would come here. These, these things are really, you know, quite confounding. Sometimes history normalizes this, like it was inevitable, like mm-hmm. that was going to happen. With Chinese-Australian families, when I began visiting them locally, I recently went to Innisfail and Cairns, the stories I got were absolutely astounding. So I'll just tell you quickly one story. My husband used to live in Cairns. He worked for KPMG there with a guy called Brian Lee, a bit of a larrikin. He was uh, (laughs) half Chinese, half Anglo. Brian had never mentioned to me that he happened to be from one of Cairns' most famous Chinese-Australian families. So when I was there, I got to meet his family. His family descended from three Chinese brothers who came out in the 1870s from a village in, in, in uh, the Cantonese part of China, the Peng, Peng brothers. They came out and they were trying to mine gold around what's now Port Douglas. And one of the brothers meets a woman called Amy who's just come off a ship from England in Charters Towers. Amy was young, she was 16, she was illiterate and she'd run away from her family on the island of Jersey in the 1860s in England. Mm -hmm. And at that time, many people did that. They just got on ships. And she came to Australia. She didn't didn't, um, have any education. So she wrote her name as Annie Beachley when she recorded herself, when she Mm -hmm. arrived here on various forms of documentation. Her name was actually Annie Bechelet. She marries this uh, Chinese man and they have a number of children like their descendants. One of their descendants said to me, you know what, I went on Ancestry. And I found all these relatives in the island of Jersey, and but I couldn't find the Beachleys. But then I realized that there were lots of Bechelets, and I hit pay dirt immediately. I called up and they said, we have always wondered where our ancestor went. We heard these stories of this long lost ancestor. She was the eldest sister in the family and she ran away and we never knew where she went. And down the generations, we've always wondered where she was. And Elwin could say, this um, half Chinese lady could say, oh yeah, that was my grandmother. She came to Australia, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And so Ellen's old. She's kind of in her 90s. And this incredible connection was discovered. So my point is, when you dig into the family history, what you discover is the heart of this nation was always multicultural. The heart of this nation at the very beginning was cross-cultural. It's just that we've been told a different story. And often the problem comes when we internalize that and that disempowers diversity. So I was so inspired, you know, by this kind of moment. And I got to say to Brian, you know, who's always kind of used humor to deflect Australian racism. Why haven't you embraced your history? And he was kind of awkward about it. And he was like, well, I just kind of wanted to fit in. And I said, but your story is amazing, right? And so this is kind of interesting moment of retrieval and recovery that that story spoke to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is, you know, in my mind, um, up until like a few years ago, the history of Chinese people being in Australia was really, you know, um, a few people from China came during the gold rush, they left, and then white Australia happened. And then, you know, under Bob Hawke, Chinese people existed in Australia all of a sudden. And, you know, up genuinely up until a few years ago, I think a lot of people... Um, really had that narrative front and center and so it's always astonishing to you know and I think that this is a little like there's a little bit of like this anecdotal thing that happens where it's like if you hear like an old person who you think is Chinese and um, from China and has lived in China their entire lives when they speak with an Australian accent it's almost kind of like a shock to the system because you've never seen any sort of representation of Chinese people being in Australia until very recently or very, very long ago. So to see the sort of pattern of, you know, of survival really of these local histories and those family histories is always really, really fascinating to me. And like that brings me to another book that you've been involved with, um, with a Chinese historian academic, Mavis Yen. Um, who's written a fantastic book that was recently published. Um, Are you able to tell us a little bit about your work in that space and a little bit about Mavis herself? I'd love to. So before I get into Mavis's story, I want to emphasize something really radical about what Mavis does, but also about the really good question you asked, Angelina, about local versus national history. 
And that is that history is about power and it's about choices. Who gets to decide who we elevate in history and who gets to decide what dates are important in history, who gets to decide who tells history? All these things are very important and often obscured. These are also important questions because our politicians tell us tell us these stories to inspire and control us. Mm-hmm. So they tell us stories about, for example, Bob Hawke and Bob Hawke's tears when the yep. Tenement generation arrived. These are stories designed to communicate compassion and shifts in government policy. But when you ask the people themselves who are subject to these laws or these moments in history, often you get a really different picture. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to change how we think about national stories, you kind of have to go, you have to go local. The problem with, I think, local histories, this is where maybe this book will, will come in, is sometimes they're like a political platform. When histories are very local, it's easy to dismiss stories that are quite telling and speak to a larger pattern of resistance as an aberration, mm-hmm. as kind of just like an unusual thing that happened in that small town. So what um, you know, I'm really interested in in terms of this moment in Chinese-Australian history, and the book that I'm involved with speaks to this, is the ways in which these local histories are beginning to get embraced by younger Chinese Australians who are forming a political platform to speak Mm -hmm. to some of these questions. A political platform that is more critical of how politicians speak about Asian Australians and maybe use Asian Australians um, for political mileage. Mavis Gokian was Australian born. She was born in Perth in the 19th century uh, to a Chinese father and a Anglo-Australian mother. Because her mother married her father, she lost her citizenship. Wow. So if you married a so-called alien at this time in Australian history, mm-hmm. you lost your power in this country. You signed over your citizenship. This was the case for many, many years in this country. Mavis was one of a number of children born to this couple. They're very happily married. They ran a successful fruit shop, but they were isolated and excluded from mainstream society. So none of her mother's friends, uh, Mavis's mother was called Mabel. None of her friends would acknowledge her after she married this Chinese man. And in fact, her own priest refused to marry her. They had to travel to Melbourne to get married. So social exclusion was real. They at one point did what a lot of Chinese Australian families did, and they took their children to China to get educated. Many Chinese Australians believed in education because they themselves were illiterate and they came from uh, a time in China where being literate, being educated was so powerful and so valuable. Many of them, in fact, created their own schools and sent money back to China and built local schools. Mm -hmm. So there was a real desire to send kids home and to learn how to read and write in Chinese because often their parents hadn't been able to do that. So the family goes to Shanghai, in fact, then tragedy strikes. Mavis's mother dies of smallpox quite soon after they arrive. And so there is this father with all these children to survive in Shanghai. He remarries another woman to to help him. The family at some point returns back to Australia. And at some point, Mavis becomes very, very interested in China and also in kind of communist ideas. Mm -hmm. So she wants a better, more equal world. And I think if you're the recipient of racism, you're automatically politicized. You don't even have a choice because things are denied you. In, in an unjust way, in a country that you're told is fair and democratic, but yet you know the lie. Mm-hmm. So that was her experience. She goes back to China and she works in various jobs. She works for um, the Chongqing government, which is a government that was kind of at the end, the Republican era. And then 49 hits and the communists take over. In fact, she's in Shanghai when the communist troops come in to liberate Shanghai and she writes these amazing letters about it. When she is living in communist China, she, she marries a communist cadre. Life is good for a while. And then uh, there's certain political campaigns in the Cultural Revolution that criticize her for her Australian ties. Mm-hmm. So she's Eurasian, remember? Yep. So her Australian roots are brought up to accuse her of disloyalty. In the same way that Chinese Australians today had their loyalty questioned, her loyalty was questioned. And she was imprisoned. And they said to her, what's your history? Mm-hmm. And she didn't know. She couldn't write it. And at that moment, she decided, she said, she said later in her work, I decided I was going to write a history of Chinese Australians because I couldn't tell my own history. Eventually, she brings her daughter, Xiaoman, to Australia in the 80s. She does a degree and she begins going around Chinatown, the Haymarket, with no money and no support and no real training and a tape recorder at Yum Cha lunches, recording elderly Chinese Australians. This generation has all passed on now, but she got them on tape. Wow. Yep. And these were people often born in the 1890s. So mm-hmm. they'd seen it all. 
And because she was Chinese Australian, she spoke often Cantonese dialects and she'd lived their life. They were super frank. They told her everything. And she typed it all up in this book in the 80s and she went around to publishers and no one was interested. She was an elderly Chinese Australian woman. She was a very humble lady on a pension in Ashfield. Could not get the book published. Very sad. Fast forward to today. Mm-hmm. This was the 1980s. Fast forward to today. Her daughter and her son-in-law got together. They got all the floppy disks. They got all the type notes. And they put the book together. And alongside me, we went to Sydney University Press. And we said, will you publish this? And they said, yes. So finally, her book was realized. Mm -hmm. She's passed away now. She passed away in 2008. But can you imagine all those years later, all those stories she collected, they've been published in this amazing book. And the book is super, super frank. We hear about family breakdown, about love, about death. We, We hear about schemes to get around immigration restriction. We hear about smuggling money and people being kidnapped in the 20s and 30s in China. We hear about everything. And it's all there in black and white. Richard and Xiaoman got permission from the descendants, many of them quite young. So now it's the people that were interviewed as like their grandchildren mm-hmm. are hearing their grandparents in this super frank yamcha lunch kind of way, yep. telling <laughs> family stories that they never told their grandchildren before they died. Mm. They see it in a book. Yeah. It's so moving. It's like having their voices back. So that's what that woman did. Incredible, incredible work with no support. So that book has changed how I think about Australian history. Um, and to see the kind of activism, frankly, on the part of her daughter and son-in-law, who were themselves not very wealthy, pushing to get this book published, to see it published, and now to see a lot of Chinese Australians go, yeah, that was my grandparents' story. That was my grandparents' story. I I know that book. That was my cousin. To see them kind of recognizing themselves in the book is so powerful and one of the coolest projects I've ever been involved in. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm just, like, completely astounded by you know not just Mavis's life but just the journey to get that book published and the work that she did to to make that happen and and you know it it's just it's incredibly empowering to sort of see those stories written on paper officially published officially in the legal deposits of libraries and to be able to like preserve the work that she she did that was so so hard to sort of you know be acknowledged um finally be out in public and and be read and embraced by all the descendants of of the people whose stories are being told um and so one thing that i really really also wanted to to talk about is um you know thinking about now and the developments of recent chinese australians and their history um including the people who might be descendants of um, of the subjects in Mavis's book, um, you know, what, what are the sort of, you know, what, what is capturing the histories of Chinese Australians today? Um, you know, is there anything beyond that is unique to, to this particular community or to immigrant communities in general? That's a fantastic question. What's been quite amazing about the reception to South Flows the Pearl is a seeming realization on the part of many Chinese Australian families, their stories are interesting, yeah. that they <laughs> matter, that they're worth telling. Mm-hmm. And if we think about our own lives, probably we've internalized ideas about what matters and what doesn't, who matters and who doesn't, and whose story is worth telling and whose story isn't worth telling. And that reflects existing inequalities in our society and existing power inequalities. Because really, if you think about it, and I know I'm kind of, you know, spruiking historians here, but there's nothing more powerful than the way you tell a story. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing more powerful than taking control of your own story. So for example, last weekend, I spoke at Gordon Library with Richard and Xiaoman, and a young Chinese man comes up to me. He says, yeah, I grew up in China. I've migrated here. And I wrote a book about being queer in China. Mm-hmm. It's called Queer Fish. He's like, I had to write it. And I said, why? He's like, well, I had to get my story out. I just wanted to tell my story and I wanted it to be believed and I wanted it to be legitimated. Yeah. So I thought that was that was really cool and, and really, really interesting. And I said to him, so how are you finding contemporary life in Australia? He's like, well, it's really hard because there's so many feelings at the moment about China. There's mm-hmm. so many fears about China and everything I say gets refracted through that. You know, are you communist? Are you not? And he said, but my life experience can't be summed up by that Mm -hmm. it's much more complex than that 
So I think people are fighting for a space for their stories that feels true to them. And I think sometimes national histories make space for that. Sometimes, for example, we look at war and return servicemen. There can be moments of true compassion where national histories, historians or the media or government say, okay, we're going to like listen to you and we're going to feel, you know, your pain and we're going to acknowledge it, right? But very often national histories don't do that. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're trying to kind of tell a national story and unify, and that naturally means assimilating and homogenizing. So what I'm finding with um, many Chinese Australians is they're, try- they're trying to speak back this idea of communist non-communist, mm-hmm. right, or pro-China anti-China, and they're trying to find a kind of humanist space within that story that says, well, actually my life is more than that. I'm more than your guilt under white Australia. I'm more than your racism. Um, I'm more than your fears of China. I'm a complex human being like you. And that's a powerful cross-cultural moment because it exposes how often in history we want people to play certain roles. Yeah. And, you know, we, we want them to, you know, be victims so we can feel better, so we can apologize to them, right? Or we want them to be bad guys. And I think there's a real hunger for that in society. But a lot of Chinese Australians are saying my story is more complex, like the queer fish book about growing up queer in China. And I think as well, just thinking to my own like family history, I think as well there's this often, um, you know, there's always this preconceived idea of what any any immigrant to Australia. It's a very linear sort of um, preconceived idea that, like you know, people take when they become Australian citizens when they assimilate from a different nation. And I think as well, like being put in that linear space is, I mean, anyone being put in any sort of like linear space is really difficult because life is not, life is not like that. And so I think as well, like reclaiming that sense of agency through being able to tell, um, you know, your story to whether or not you're telling it yourself or uh, someone else is telling it to be able to reclaim that agency and to show just the sheer amount of diversity, the sheer amount of um, resilience really that um, exists by even the story just existing on paper today yeah I think it's absolutely incredible um, one thing sort of separate from all of um, all of this is something that I've been observing which is historians on Twitter which is again um, something that I'm just fascinated about because it is you know, we've been talking a lot about agency and surveillance. And I think one of the ways that we often just as people in general try to seek agency is by expressing what we want to say, when we want to say it, how we want to say it. And academia has been, academia recently has not been the most friendly space, to say the least, for those ideas and for you express thoughts without any form of bureaucracy sort of stopping you from doing so. So I've just made some curious observations just as someone who loves to follow lots of different academics on Twitter that, you know, Twitter has become a really, really unique space for academics particularly and particularly lots and lots of historians. Um, and so I guess I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on what you think is happening with this um, with this sort of trend, I guess, in historians using social media to, uh, Twitter especially, to express agency or to promote their work, to network with other historians. That is such an important observation about a shift in higher education and a shift in how academics relate to each other and mm-hmm. their students. You're absolutely right. Higher education is famously in, in ruins, as a, a scholar uh, wrote about the higher education system workloads are high there are far too many students in in tutorials um students aren't getting in my opinion the teaching that they need the attention that they need let alone the pastoral care that they may need in the institution academics themselves feel alienated um, feel like they're in silos feel disconnected from their institution so the university as a community has kind of collapsed yeah and it seems to have moved onto twitter Mm-hmm. So academics are trained. They're paid to talk. Mm-hmm. They're paid to express their opinion. And you have technology emerging in the lives of people that are, you know, in their 40s and 50s, remember, who didn't grow up with that technology. Technology emerging available for them to find community immediately. So what you 
see then is a breakdown of that formal classroom structure where you have an academic at the front of the classroom saying important things and everyone kind of taking notes or they write a big book and everyone responds. You have an academic when their thoughts are embryonic mm-hmm. or their anger is embryonic. They haven't had time to polish it. Putting it out there on Twitter with students, with activists, with people who are right wing or left wing. So not only are they creating community with other academics, but they're being challenged. So certain you know things that they might think or thoughts they might have about their power or their authority or their investments in their profession, you know, get get challenged. Also, it's all recorded. It's all done publicly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really interesting barometer for where academia is. It's proof that everyone wants community. Everyone wants connection. Everyone wants to feel like they're part of something better. And I think Twitter represents for many academics a more democratic space than their own institution. Often they feel fear in that institution. They feel scared. They feel police. They feel su- under surveillance. And they are under surveillance. But on Twitter, there's kind of a leveling out. Mm-hmm. So I think you see two things. You see ideas, which is fantastic. You also see, I think, desperation, emotion, yep, uh, sadness. You see, in some ways, a funeral for their profession, right? Yep. Kind of on Twitter. So it's a really interesting thing to watch. What gives me hope is you know, that the generations below these um, academics, the ones that have come after, they know this space. They know it better than the academics who are using it. And so I think that it's creating really healthy power dynamics between younger scholars, for example, early career researchers, casual scholars, mm-hmm. and more established scholars. Because on Twitter, everyone looks equal. Yeah. And you can call people out in a way that maybe you couldn't if you were a casual scholar um, under in, in stressful circumstances in a department meeting. So it's a fantastic observation, and let's watch this space. I'm very, very much watching this space. And I think as well, something that um, has always sort of struck me is, you know, will we be quoting historians' tweets in, you know, 10 years' time, in 20 years' time? Because, you know, if we're quoting, you know, academic articles and stuff, what what devalues a tweet from, from that? Nothing. So, um, you know, I think as well, like, because people writing reactively on Twitter is often filled with emotion as well. There's so much value in being able to analyze analyze the meaning behind it. Whether or not it's a historian tweeting or, you know, whoever's tweeting, it's it's always reactive. Social media is far less to Twitter I think especially is a far less strategic space um for most people. Um, so I think I'm just, I'm fascinated to see where that will sort of be in, in five or 10 years and whether or not we'll start thinking about that more and incorporating it into, into history research. Um, so one thing that I really wanted to ask you about is, um, undergraduate teaching today and the, the way it's, the way it's been for the past, you know, five, ten years is dramatically different to what I think traditionally, what ideas we traditionally have about higher education. And as you said, historians are essentially mourning their professions on Twitter. And it's really, really, it's really depressing. And um, I think one of the things that I've really noticed um, in, in throughout my undergraduate degree is just, you know, at the University of Sydney, there are so few choices of classes to do. And um, often as, you know, I work part-time, I now work four days a week. So I'm very limited in my class options naturally. And so often with, um, you know, the continued cuts to different classes and stuff um, alongside um, redundancies and casual staff not being placed on permanent contracts, um, a lot of my classes are essentially given to me you know, I'm not choosing anything. I'm choosing what I have to essentially to do my degree. Um, And what I'm finding is that a lot of the classes, particularly within the history department, are organized by like location. They're organized geographically. And, but the classes that I find that, you know, used to be on selection and the way that a lot of historians really do prefer to teach is thematically. So, I'm, I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on what you see as, as the shift um, over the next few years in this thematic versus geographic teaching of, of history. 
this speaks to my heart. It really does because it was thematic classes that got me into history in the first place because they communicated to me that the way I think about things can transform my whole life, can transform a place. A place is just a name, a construct, but a theme, an idea, that's an argument that can change things, can change the world. So I'm a huge supporter of that. My experience in the undergraduate classroom at the University of Sydney has been a massive privilege. I have had students that often work multiple jobs that live in difficult situations in terms of rent or hard to get places, places that are far away from the uni, and they make time for me. They make time for my class. They have no guarantee of a job from my class. They make time because they want to think. That's a huge privilege for someone to say to you, I'm going to make time for you. So that's been really moving to see. Um, what you're talking about really, really animates me because students who come to this university deserve choice. They deserve to make a decision about what they want to study in a reasonable context. By that I mean with reasonable amounts of choice. They deserve to do that in ways that accommodate their work schedule, in ways that accommodate their commitments, in ways that accommodate their activism or their extracurriculars, whatever those may be, or their health. What we're finding increasingly is the radical edge of a lot of disciplines like history mm -hmm. or English or philosophy, you name it, is being taken off and a kind of mainstreaming sort of fast food approach where it's like, we're just gonna choose the real basics. We constantly get asked, if you had to teach only one class in history, you know, what would it be? What are the <laughs> basics? Yep. And the reality is the basics, in my opinion, aren't enough. You've gotta take the basics, American history, Australian history, Chinese history, French history. Then you've gotta transform them and say, we can see connections that you didn't see before. We can show you how, a rebellion among slaves in the Caribbean was as important as the French Revolution. We can show you these things. Mm -hmm. We can show you how people, men and women that lived in um, East Germany under the Stasi, they had things to say to you about human emotion, about human resistance that are relevant even if you're a historian of America. These connections matter because they empower, empower us to think as a global community. So when we take that away from students, we take away their power to think as a global community. And that matters to me a great deal. I'm hopeful that the incredible activism of students who, by the way, give their time entirely for free, when they have no property, they have no power in this society, mm -hmm. they give their time for free. I'm hoping that their activism will change that trend and they will say, no, we want this variety. We want to think thematically. We want thematic courses. And I'm hoping that they get listened to. As far as I'm concerned, it's been really, really helpful to me to have students that are very vocal about courses, the courses that they like. My favorite course that I ever taught was Spies in the Archive mm -hmm. because it was about just that. It was about students being able to read these surveillance files and see connections between surveillance and resistance across all human societies because we're all under surveillance all the time and have to make choices about that. To me, it also built compassion because students were showing compassion with subjects all across the world, in Guatemala, in Russia, in China, in indigenous communities in Australia. Every community has experienced surveillance of, of some sort and how we read those documents is a very ethical choice. So I love your question because I think as an academic, it speaks to my heart, which is giving mm. students choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, like, you know, in my experience, even taking the classes within the department that, you know, have just worked because it's the one class that I can take, you know, my, my professors have been just as accommodating as they possibly can be, which is incredible. And, you know, they are, like they're teaching such fascinating content and trying to, you know, really make it relate on a more transnational level. And I always think that's really incredible, even if the class itself isn't necessarily thematic. Um, there's just, you know, there are so many lessons that can be learnt and really, really, you know, appreciate the, the, the teachers who take the time to do that. Um, Wrapping up, I have one final question for you, which is always, I think, something fun, hopefully, that academics like to answer and that I like to ask um, just, you know, to myself <laughs> or just, you know, thoughts. Um, but what message would you have for university students now studying whether or not it's history, philosophy, um, you know, science? 
you know, what who, they might be really, really passionate about academia. So what, what advice is, you know, do you think is important for them to know about our current context and their futures? Don't dismiss yourself. Look at your own story. Look at your own life. See that what you observe every day, the way that you work, how you live, how you love, how you learn, all of these things actually inform a lot of knowledge. Every day you are learning about your society, which is in a strange state of flux right now. That information that you are learning is unique and valuable. Feel free and feel empowered in all your classes to use your own knowledge and use your own opinion and refract that through what you learn. You don't need to be an expert in anything to have an opinion about our society at the moment. You are empowered to do that. Your choice to be here gives you that right. So I would say value your own experience that you are having, value your own um, value your own uh, resistances, the forms of resistance that you, you go through in your life, value the forms of oppression that you know, find ways of articulating that because that matters and people will eventually listen. Thank you so much, Sophie. Um, I hope that's, you know, to, to everyone listening, I hope that's of comfort. It definitely was to me as I, as I was listening. But, yeah, thank you again for, for being our guest today. And thank you to Carla and Harry for, for allowing me to guest host today. It's been absolutely incredible. And, again, I want to thank you for your time, Sophie, for taking the time out of your very, very busy research schedule to, to be with us today. So thank you. It has been an absolute privilege. Thank you all. Test, test. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. <coughs> um, test, test. All right, take one. Okay. This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge the traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Can you repeat fair for the community? Oh, yeah, sorry, my bad. Fair. So this podcast was... Yeah, that's sorry. I think I mistyped. My bad. Uh, all good. All right. Um, take two. This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Okay. Do you want to just try to, like, I know you're taking two, so you could maybe just, like, a little bit misunderstanding. Sure. Sorry. Take mm. three. That's right. This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I thought that was really good. Yeah. I like that more because it's just like, it's just a little bit like chill. Yeah. So do you want to do like just like another kind of just like chill one? Like sure. You're just kind of chatting to me and like you're just like. Sure. Take two. Mm. This podcast was produced on the land of the Gadigal people. We acknowledge their traditional ownership of this land and pay respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Yeah, cool.